All right, you can grab a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills. Just want to say a word of greeting to everyone here uh, and all those people who are podcasting around the cities, around the country, around the world. Okay, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and you're at your desk or you're on a break from your shift. You head to the vending machine because you have to have something to eat. Do you choose salty or do you choose sweet? Turn to your neighbor and tell them salty or sweet. All right, ready, go. All right, that's good. We don't need to have a fight about which salty snack is best or which candy bar is superior. Raise your hand how many chose salty. Yeah, that's what I thought. People ask me about Woodland Hills and I say, it's a salty congregation, so I'm right. <laughs> All right. Um, we're continuing this series that we kicked off this last uh, weekend when Greg talked to us about, um, as people who follow Jesus, uh, we have one king. We have one president. There is one leader who dictates the way that we live our lives and who deserves our full allegiance and devotion. This week, we are continuing that series um, with a sermon called No Country Today. We're going to talk today about what does it mean for those of us who follow Jesus to pledge our allegiance to Jesus and his way, and how are we supposed to then interact with this world? Now, when I say the, the phrase, the world, what does that make you think of? It, you think of something bad? Do you think of something good? When I was growing up in my, uh, in my high school youth group, our youth pastor often talked to us about how we were foreigners, we were, we were strangers, we shouldn't have any part in the world. Um, and so then one of the things that we would do, usually at like the culmination of a week-long uh, sort of youth rally, we would all collect our, our music that came from non-Christian record labels, that was indicative of the world. We would all bring those CDs and put them in a giant trash can and sort of burn them as like a revolutionary thing of like, we're not of this world, you know? And then the next week I would go back out and buy the same CDs over again because I missed them, right? Now, when I went to buy CDs, if you went to the Christian bookstore at this time, you could, um, I'm, I'm old enough that when I, was, uh, when I was in high school, sort of all the rage was, there was two kinds of music that got burned in the trash can because they were clearly from the world. One was heavy metal and the other was gangster rap. So that was most of my collection. Uh, I listened to Quiet Riot. Anyone old enough to remember this band? Come on, feel the noise. Yeah. So the day after I burned the CDs, then I would, I would go to the Christian uh, record store, because there was such a thing, and the, the genius folks there had, had sort of had this idea. They would, uh, they would make a list of the kinds of non-Christian music that you might like. So for instance, it would say like, if you like Quiet Riot, then you will like this. And it's a Christian band intending to sound like that. And inevitably, all the, all the heavy metal sort of Quiet Riot listeners, we ended up buying uh, CDs by a band called Striper. Who remembers Striper? Are you old enough to do that? To hell with the devil, right? Yeah. <laughs> What does it mean for us to be Christians in the world? Now, it's funny when you talk about youth groups and music, right? It's a little more challenging when we think about the state that our, our world is in today. What do we mean by the world? 
On one hand, when Jesus talked about the world, uh, he used it as a negative, right? He would talk about the kingdoms of this world. They're, they're under the authority of, of evil influences. And just to remind us, the reason that that's true is not because that's the way that God created the world. It's because God created you and I as human beings to bear God's image, to exercise servant leadership in our world, to help this project on earth flourish and look like the kingdom of God. But we have a problem. Instead of choosing to exercise that servant leadership under the authority of God, we, we decided that we wanted to choose me first. And when we did that, we surrendered our servant leadership over to a power, to a powerful being. He's an adversary of everything good. And what he does, he tries to influence and lead everything he possibly can to steal, to kill, and to destroy human flourishing. But on the other hand, when God looks at the world, you know, at every football game, we'll see a poster behind the goalpost that says, God loves the world. And we've heard it so many times that maybe we miss the beauty, the captivating vision. God loves this world. God loves it enough that he engaged this world. And it's a good thing that he did because without it, I would have no hope. So when we think about the world, what do we think about? What is the world, all right? Now, I'm going to be leading a Cultivate class next semester to show all of you how to illustrate with the amazing skill that I do. I know you're all jealous. When we think about the world, I want you to think about there's a few gears, sort of like the inside of a watch. They synchronize together to create what culture is like. Um, a couple of these. Uh, one is political. The political gear turns. The other is the economic engine. The economic engine of our world creates a lot of the culture that we live in. And the other is the social. Each one of these, as they grind together, they create the reality of the world that we live in, which is heavily under the influence of the person who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And at the same time, it's the world that God loves and is working to redeem. So we have a problem the world that we live in is suffering and struggling, and God's loving it. So what do we do? How do we change the world? I hope to make the case for you that like, there's two ways and reasons that we as people who follow Jesus Christ, there's, there's two things that are our primary calling when it comes to this. We are ambassadors. And what I mean by that is we pledge our allegiance to the kingdom that will never fail, the banner that flies over our homes and our workplaces and our lives and our hearts and our minds is the blue banner of love, regardless of whatever country that we find ourselves in. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, but we are not just ambassadors. We're missionaries sent into the world that God loves. And I hope that when we get to the end of this 30 minutes or so together, we'll have some stronger ideas about how it is that we can do that. But first, I want to show you how not to do that, okay? There's a couple common ways that we try to figure out what do we do in a world that is good and that is evil at the same time, that God is frustrated by, but God also loves. What do we do as human beings? Now, there's some folks who say that the world is bad. It is so bad that it's unsafe for you. 
And so what you and I should do is we should pull out of it. We should build a beautiful wall that is uh, impenetrable, and we will live in a little zone of safety while the world, um, you ever heard this phrase, goes to hell in a handbasket? You ever heard that? This is called a philosophy of withdrawal. We'll just pull out of it. Now, on the other side, there's a way that the world is arranged. And the reason the world is arranged this way is because you and I are, are still like this. The world organizes itself by power, right? At the bottom, you have people who don't have as much power. In the middle, you have middle managers. At the top, you have the bosses. This is kind of the normative way that we arrange ourselves in this society. And so what we can do is we can say, listen, does God want everyone in the system to be a Christian? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely, right? So why don't we just use the efficiency of this model? We will put a Christian in charge. And they will force everyone to become a Christian. Isn't that a grand idea? There's a major problem with that. Is that the thing that's wrong with everybody in this system and the thing that's wrong with everybody in this room and the thing that's wrong with everybody on this stage because it's right here. Um, is that I have a me first heart. And you can pass any law you want to there's no law that can transform a human heart. You can't do it. So what do we do? We don't try to take over and exploit. We don't withdraw. We try to work in the world that God loves for human flourishing. How can we help human beings in this world live to their full redemptive kingdom potential? And we do that as ambassadors and missionaries. How? How will we do this? Uh, best sermon I've ever heard. I never actually heard it. I just read about it. It's in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to let the master of life teach us about how we're supposed to do this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gathers his disciples and he says you, and that you is plural. He's on a mountainside. The crowds are listening to his teaching because they're attracted by what he says. He's gathered this little team of 12 people that he's going to train. And so when he says you, he's not pointing at one person. He's saying you together, you are the light of the world. You're a city that's built on a hill that cannot be hidden. People don't put light, they don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they can see your good deeds. Good deeds there, uh, synonymous with justice and mercy. It means living generously, involving yourself in the lives of people who have greater needs than you do. When people see that, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Why does Jesus use the idea of a city? Why would we need a city? And what does he mean by light? Now in scripture, when it talks about light as a metaphor, the primary light of the world is who? Yeah, it's not hard, guys. This is church. The primary light of the world is? Almost always the right answer. The primary light of the world is Jesus. Okay? And when we say truth, we don't mean that he's mathematically accurate. 
What we mean by truth is he's lived the most true human life that we've ever seen. He perfected it. And then he taught this little group of disciples to continue that work. So before the light of the world is true about us, it's first true about Jesus. But then Jesus says that it's true about those followers, and we come along in that line. We together are the light of the world? Why would we need to be a city? Surveyed American Christians. 80% of American Christians believe that you can be a fully formed, mature Christian without participating in church at all. 80%. Why would we need a city? Well, the reason why is because what is the gospel about at the bottom? You know, when you get to the bottom of like the, the, the kernel, the nugget of truth, what is the gospel about? Why would you need a city? Because the gospel is about healing relationships. I hate to use this illustration because so many people have been uh, hurt by it. Um, But I want to think about cancer. Um, Cancer gets into our bodies and it starts to take over. And I knew I had a cancer real early on in life. I could figure it out in second grade. In second grade, when the teacher said it was time for recess or lunch and told us to get in line, I noticed that I was never drawn to the back of the line. It's the craziest thing. There was one place I always wanted to be, the front of the line. And I was ready to mow over anyone who was in my way. I have what the doctors call a me-first mentality, and it's a sickness. It's a cancer. It's a cancer because it's not just me first when it comes to you and I. It can be a me first when it comes to God. God, do I want things your way or do I want things my way? The gospel at the bottom is about healing relationships. The first relationship that needs to be healed is the relationship between you and the Father. And there's only one thing that can kill the cancer of a me first mentality. You know what that is? It's a genius plan. It's a cross. On the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to the me-first mentality that I was a prisoner to. So it required repentance and faith. But the thing is, like, I didn't stop transforming my life. Like, yes, my cancer is in remission, but it's still there. There's a lot of that me-first mentality in me. I know that you all have been fully delivered by it, but I have a lot more to get worked out. What's the best place to get a me-first mentality worked out of you? In a city. Why? Why would you need other people to help you work this out? Now, if you've grown up uh, in America or if you've been Americanized, there's a myth that we believe in our culture, which is your life is the product of your choices. And to a large degree, in fact, to the largest degree, that's not true. In a, in a monstrous way, you are actually the product of community. You are a social being. The way that you were treated in the first three years of your life has an immense effect on who you are as a person. In fact, many of the choices that you've made since then are largely related to that. You put a person in a family where they don't feel loved or accepted, where they feel rejected, or they feel a burden of performing to get love and affirmation, that person will make many choices based upon that brokenness, 
or the strength of that family. Any Myers-Briggs fans in here? Raise your hand if you know your Myers-Briggs or love it. I love it because I love to categorize people. So I go through the mall. I know what Myers-Briggs you are. ENFP, INTJ, I can tell what you are. <laughs> Myers-Briggs, like our personality forms in a lot of ways because of the place that we've grown up in. You're not primarily a product of your choices. You are primarily the product of a community of people. The culture that you grew up in, the ethnicity that you are, the neighborhood, the city, all of these things inform who you are as a person. And so when Jesus calls his disciples together and said, you've got to be a city together, it's because this is what we were created for. Community is the only antidote that can root out the remainders of a me-first mentality in our lives. Let me just pause and ask you a question. Are you helping to build the city here? If we're supposed to be a community, a city, I have to tell you, that means more than coming to church two or three times a month because you like the music and the sermon. Are you contributing to this city? Are you offering your gifts? Are you giving and receiving love? Are you engaged? Are you helping to build what God is doing here? It requires a city, but not just any kind of city. In that same sermon a little earlier, Jesus gives us some clarification about this. Let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You, again, he's talking in the plural. You guys, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I have to admit, this is confusing for most of my life. Because I've never sat down at someone's dinner table and tried to sprinkle salt on the french fries and taste it and be like, this isn't salty, throw it out. Have you ever done that? I've never had to do that. In Jesus' day, when he talked about salt, this is a very intentional metaphor that he chose. Because uh, in the ancient world, we live in the modern world, so one of the things that we get the benefit of is the only salt that ever makes it to our table is grade A salt, but it wasn't like that in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, there was some salt that was not salty enough to be put on french fries. Sorry, Jesus didn't have french fries. That was artistic license. Thanks for that. <laughs> so maybe to help translate it, like, we know about this because we put, some, we put salt on french fries, and at the same time, we put salt on our driveway. Would anyone take the salt from your driveway and put it on your french fries? I hope not. I certainly hope not. How does salt lose its saltiness? How does excellent salt become salt that's not even useful enough to just be thrown out? Okay, now I went to Bible college, but I did have to take a chemistry class. Do any of you guys know the scientific formula for salt? What a smart congregation you guys are. Uh, Na is for? Cl is for? Yeah, sodium chloride. If you have sodium, do you have salt? No. Do you know if you have sodium without chloride and pure sodium, do you know that it's toxic and poisonous? Did you know that if you have chloride without sodium, it's also toxic? It's funny. Both of these elements on their own could kill you, but if you put them together, it makes caramel even better, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I know that was bad. Now, what I want to do is, uh, okay, so the way us preachers work is we look at something like this, and we're always looking for a sermon illustration, always. So what I'm thinking is like, 
Sodium is you, chloride is the Holy Spirit, put you two together, it's an amazing team, right? Okay, the only problem is it's not in a text and I don't like to make stuff up, so I just had to leave that one there, okay? What is it that makes sodium chloride less salty? There's one thing. The more other things get in here, the less salty it is. The more other minerals besides sodium chloride, the more it loses its flavor. When Jesus says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, what he means is, if you start adding other stuff in here, if you add enough of it in here, it's not even worth it anymore. Now, why would he say that? Salt is an interesting illustration because on one hand, salt is delicious. But on the other hand, salt is painful. I learned this lesson uh, in seventh grade. In seventh grade, my youth group in California, there's a couple days during the summer we would get in a school bus and drive down to the beach. Now, the day before the youth group was going to the beach, I had wiped out of my BMX bike and I had a big scrape down my leg. So I went to the beach, kicked my shorts on, took my shirt off, headed down and jumped right into the water. You guys are smarter than I was. Ouch, it hurt. Because salt can sting you, right? In, in Jesus' day, uh, meat was a pretty valuable thing. They didn't have any refrigerators, and so people wanted to keep their meat good. And one of the ways they would keep their meat good is by putting salt all over it. Why? What does salt do? Salt preserves. And the way that it preserves is salt can attack and neutralize the bacteria in meat that cause decomposition and decay. Salt can preserve things from decaying and breaking down. Have you ever noticed that in our world, relationships, they're always blowing up. They're always breaking down. Marriages dissolve, friendships melt down at the workplace. Anyone have any relationships break down in your job? Anybody ever been to a family reunion where everything wasn't just totally smooth? In our cities, in our neighborhoods. This me-first mentality, it's, it has a destructive force on our relationships. I've never been more convicted than when I think about this principle. We're the, we're the salt of the earth. Where the me-first mentality is causing other relationships to break down, we don't do that because we're salt. So I'm tempted to fire off an angry email to put another coworker in his place about Project X that he or she is not doing my way. And just before I hit send, I think, I don't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm the salt. I'm preservative. I go into areas where there's decay, and I hold things together. I keep the relationship moving. I keep it alive. This is what salt does. In our families, and in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, on social media. When the me-first mentality starts rising up, I'm reminded, Seth, you're salt. You don't do that. I want to say just a couple more things before we wrap up here. There's something else about being salt and light that you need to know. 
And Jesus, actually, before he talks about salt and light, he lets the disciples know why he's talking about salt and light because he gets real clear with them on what it's going to mean for them to be followers of yours. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you. That word blessed um, oftentimes gets understood or translated as happy. And although certainly blessed people are happy, the biblical understanding of blessed means more than that. To be blessed in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day was to be successful. To be so successful that other people should emulate you. If you're blessed, you're so good at living the human life that other people should follow you. So Jesus says, you'll know that you're successful when people insult you, when they persecute you, and when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. All right, three things I want to say here. The first thing I want to say is Jesus says when, not if. He doesn't say it's possibly going to happen. He seems to think that for these disciples to be fully committed that Jesus' way, that Jesus is their president, and that their allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven, and that their work is to be ambassadors and missionaries on earth to God's way of doing things with good deeds of justice and mercy and being light and truth, Jesus is certain that they will get persecuted. It's not a question of if it will happen. It's a question of when it will happen. The second thing I want to say about this verse is if you're experiencing persecution or being insulted, before you claim this Bible verse of like, all right, Jesus, I'm being persecuted because of you, you just got to make sure. Make sure you're being persecuted because of him, not because of you. Okay? Uh, just a little word to the wise. Sometimes when you're engaged with someone in a conversation, it's not what you say that causes them to insult you. It's how you say it, Right? Make sure that uh, if you're being insulted or persecuted, it's because of Jesus' way. First uh, Peter would say, uh, not just because you're being obnoxious and a meddler. The beatitude doesn't work if you're rude and obnoxious, okay? It only works when it's, it's for Jesus' sake. And then the last thing that I'm going to say about this is like, when it happens, Jesus tells us we're supposed to rejoice. What? How am I supposed to rejoice when people are insulting and persecuting me? I don't know what you do. When someone insults me, my initial response is to do what? I will crush you. (laughs) Right? Here's the problem, right? I don't need to. When someone else insults or persecutes me, it doesn't matter. The reason it doesn't matter is because the only thing they're pointing out to me is is that uh, I'm not first. And it's a good thing because actually I'm trying to kill that part off anyway. So I can rejoice when you persecute me or when you remind me that it's not my way or I don't get to be first because you're doing me a favor. I'm trying to kill that part off anyway. I don't have to grasp for something. How do we ever find the inner character to do this? to be ambassadors and missionaries to our world. But first, I have a question for you. Is there any part of this world that's so dark that it's outside of God's love or vision? Is there any part of the world that's so dark that God doesn't have hope or vision? 
So we're called to be ambassadors of the kingdom and missionaries of God's work on earth. But I just have to say the last thing I want to tell you before I finish up is be smart. The reason I can say this is because I spent so much time as a youth pastor, which equipped me specifically for this task. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I would oftentimes poll the kids and I'd say, hey guys, what is it that you want me to preach about? You know, I, like, I wanted to address sermons about what they were going through. Uh, after a couple years, I stopped doing it because I no longer needed a survey. I knew what they wanted me to talk about. There was two subjects. They wanted to talk about the end times because all that weird stuff in Revelation is always fun to talk about. And then secondly, they wanted to talk about sex. It was a bonus if I could answer the question, will there be sex in the end times? That was bonus work. <laughs> Inevitably, during a series about this, I would have one of our students come and say, Seth, I, I need your advice. And I'd say, what's going on? I'm in love with Johnny. And I'd go, great, that sounds amazing. I, okay, well, what do you mean to do? They said, no, there's a problem. Johnny's not a Christian. And I'd say, okay. And they'd say, but if I... If I date Johnny and love Johnny, I will make him a Christian. I will be a missionary through my love to Johnny, right? Um, I will convert Johnny to Christianity because of this relationship. How often did that work? Okay. Um, I know this is going to seem weird, but Paul actually has something to say about a topic that's like this in the book of Romans, and we're going to take a look at it. Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I just want to pause. This is not saying if you're vegetarian, you're weak, and if you like cheeseburgers, you're strong. We're going to get to that. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does because God has accepted them both. A couple things I want to notice about this. When I would talk to these students about missionary dating, I would want them to be smart. Because more often than not, they were, they were entering into dangerous territory. Dating is dangerous territory. There is all kinds of ways for dating relationships to become unsalty. There just is. It's dangerous territory. You have to be smart about the places that you feel called to be an ambassador or a missionary because not every corner of the darkness in our world is equally as dark. And you got to be smart. Paul, he says something here that's evaluative. He says there is faith that's strong and there is faith that's weak. Around certain issues and ideas, some people will have more faith and some people will have less faith. It's evaluative. That's okay. At the same time, the one who has strong faith should not judge the one who has weak faith or vice versa. We don't use our differences in strength and weakness to judge each other. We accept the differences between each other because God has accepted us. What do I mean by that? So if I ask myself the question, like, okay, God, you're calling me to be salt and light, to not withdraw from my world, to be engaged in my world, to be a countercultural city for the good and the flourishing of the people that you love. And I know that everywhere in the world there's darkness, you want to see light. So where are you calling me to do that? 
Just imagine that I went and interviewed to be an ambassador for the United States. And I finished up my training, and then I was in a meeting for placement. So they showed me all the open positions. And so because I'm, my name is Seth, I'm just going to scroll through the S's. I'm going to pick one of the S's. I come across Sweden to be an ambassador to Sweden. That sounds awesome. I love Ikea. That would be a great job. That wouldn't be hard. Then I scroll down on the list and I see Syria. Would it be hard or easy to be an ambassador to Syria right now? Be hard. We as an entire church have people who are working as ambassadors and missionaries of God's kingdom in all parts of God's world. And not all of them are the same. Some of them are hard. You have to be smart about the area that you choose because at the end of the day, if you choose to be a missionary and in the process of reaching into the darkness, you become dark. Jesus said, if you take a light and if you put the light under the bowl, there's no light for anyone. How do we do this? After Peter had denied Jesus and Jesus had resurrected from the dead, Jesus had a question for Peter. Peter wondered if he was still useful in the kingdom. And Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And he said it once, and he said it twice, and he said it three times. And then at the end of that, when Peter says, yes, I do, then Jesus made a connection. He said, if you love me, then you will feed my sheep. If you love me, then you will contribute to the flourishing and the life of other people. That's how these two things go together. Who's God's sheep? Everybody. Is there a corner of the world that God doesn't want to see light? Is there a culture or a neighborhood or a town or a state or a country that doesn't need a city? a countercultural community of people who are living for the good and the flourishing of the people that are around them. See, when Jesus challenges Peter to feed his sheep, what he's saying is, I don't want you to withdraw from the world. I don't want you to try to take over the world. I want you to invest yourself into my interest in other people's lives. I have good that I want to see in other people's lives. Will you work with me on seeing that good? What he was not saying, Jesus did not mean identify me with your interests in other people. Don't try to force other people to do what you want them to do and say that it's me because it's not. You should do what I want to do in other people's lives. That's the kingdom. How can we do this? An ambassador and a missionary has to be clear on what salty is. There's one thing. We live our lives not with a me-first mentality. We're devoted to one thing, and that's Christ and his kingdom. And we can and will do that in any and every country in the world. We don't withdraw from the world that God loves. We're engaged with the people who God has already forgiven with the message that ambassadors bring and that missionaries bring, which is your sins are no longer counted against you. You can come back home to the Father, and it can be today. Woodland Hills or wherever you're listening online, let's be the city 
that God dreams of. Let's, let's live salty lives and let's do that brilliantly, not for the sake of ourselves, but working in our neighborhoods and in our families and in business and in our city for human flourishing so that we won't just pray it, but with our hands we'll live it out. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on this, your earth, just like it is in heaven. Would you stand? I want to let you know that um, you know, this message of your sins are no longer counted against you. You can come home to the Father. If you're not at home with the Father and this, this is your day, we'll have uh, people who are up here at the altars that would love to pray and talk with you about that. Or if you have any other need that you could use, someone else to come alongside you and join their faith with yours, there'll be a team up here to pray for you. Let me send you out with a blessing. Would you close your eyes? Jesus, cement us together as a city. Let us do it with your kind of saltiness in mind. A community of courage and character that's built on faithfulness to you. Pray that you'd help us work out the me first mentality, that cancer that's it's in remission but needs more work. I pray that you would help us to do that. And I pray that we would be a countercultural for the good of the people that are around us in our lives and in our great city. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.